welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm so glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Timothy O'Malley. He is a director of education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. And he's the academic director of the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy. He's the author of Real Presence, What Does It Mean and Why Does It Matter? I want to speak with Timothy because really we've been discussing communion in the national conversation ever since President Biden was elected. And for those who don't know what communion is, it's what we as Catholics believe is the body and blood of Christ. And it's a hot debate right now in the church and has gotten a lot of eyes on it outside the church. And as we're recording this, the American bishops are meeting to discuss the possible publication of a document on the Eucharist and the life of Catholics today. And who better to discuss this than Timothy, who knows the theology and is able to articulate it and make sense of it in a really accessible way. And he has a nuanced perspective that I hope makes you think. And of course, we have to go there. So I asked him, what advice would he give the bishops on banning or admitting President Biden to communion? And maybe his response will surprise you and make you think and engage more deeply on what the Eucharist really is and who you are in terms of your own Eucharistic coherence. So stick around for that conversation. But before we get to that, I want to talk about Juneteenth. We just celebrated it. I celebrated Juneteenth growing up. And I know our nation is now coming to discover this long-held celebration within the Black community, particularly among those of us who have roots in Texas. What Juneteenth is, is a celebration of the end of slavery in the Confederate States. It came a full two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And so for the hundreds of thousands of African Americans that were finally legally freed, it was a jubilant moment that has effects down through today to people like myself. And as Catholics, they're an important body of Christ that we need to remember and celebrate their liberation and ponder what it means to be free in these United States as Catholics and how we practice our faith and live our life. It's just such a rich, rich celebration of the Black experience and of liberation. And I will tell you, I remember being on the phone with my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, and even my great-grandfather celebrated Juneteenth up until his death in 1994 at age 105. We're not that far removed from it, people. I mean, think about this. My great-grandfather died in 1994, and he was the child of formerly enslaved people who were impacted by Juneteenth. So as Catholics, as we celebrate daily, really, our liberation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we should be able to relate to that joy, that jubilation that the enslaved people felt, that those of us who are descendants of those people that we feel, we have that joy, which is really God-given about the end of our bondage in the Confederacy. And soon after, you'd see the amendments to try to protect our liberation and everybody else's understanding of us as free people. And this is a time in our country that I think we have to remember, we have to mark. And I also think it's the hand of God touching our nation as well through that liberation, which harkens us back to the liberation that he's done for all of us. So 
Let's celebrate. If you haven't already, I know it already passed, but just raise a cup today in honor of those great people who were liberated and how they survived. I think it's a beautiful story if you ponder it. As you know, I'm doing this podcast with America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening around the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. Look, you may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And you know what? That's okay. (laughs) That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. And the best way to support this ministry and my podcast is to get a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Timothy O'Malley is up next. Thank you, Tim, for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Gloria. I really enjoyed your book, Real Presence. What does it mean and why does it matter? I like how in the very beginning you start to talk about, look, why there's confusion around not just the Eucharist, our understanding of the Eucharist, but also transubstantiation. And for our listeners who are unaware, there's been a lot of discussion lately, or angst rather, about a Pew Research poll that seems to indicate that not uh, that there are too many Catholics who don't believe in the real presence. And I love that you pointed out, Tim, that maybe the question was asked wrong in, in the Pew Research Survey. Maybe, they, maybe there are more people than we think that do understand this, but the, the actual phrasing of the Pew Research poll itself was wrong. Could you talk a little bit about that, about what you think was wrong with the Pew Research poll question? Sure. Yeah, the Pew Research poll asks if Christ is actually present in the Eucharist, which in some sense is not precisely what Catholics think. Catholics say that Christ is sacramentally present. There is a sort of presence to it, but it's not an actual presence. So, you know, when you think about your average parish, is it really the case that everyone in the parish that goes to Mass every Sunday, enduring sometimes very bad homilies, uh, (laughs) terrible music, that, that they have no idea what's happening? That's just probably not true. I think that there's devotionally a sense that people believe in the real presence. But I do think, you know, as a professor of theology at Notre Dame, I teach undergrads primarily. They very clearly don't know the doctrines of transubstantiation or real presence, what they are. They are novel to them, even if they have Eucharistic devotion. So I think part of the problem with the question is it asks a a question purely based on understanding and not on actual devotional life. Mm. So I know one of the things that you say is important is devotional life toward the understanding of the Eucharist. Why is that? Why do you think devotional life uh, vis-a-vis the Eucharist is so important? Yeah, well, I think the Eucharistic teachings of the church are not abstract problems first. They're problems, or or I should say problems that arose because people began to worship the Eucharist and worship Christ in the Eucharist, trying to figure out what that meant. So I think devotion is everything. But to give an example, I have a second grade son. He just received his first communion, which is pretty awesome. And I didn't spend hours with him explaining the doctrine of transubstantiation. He's, you know, he's eight years old. But what I did do was teach him to bend the knee before the Blessed Sacrament, to genuflect, to Mm -hmm. bow, to behave in a sort of reverent postures. 
you know, this is the beginning of Eucharistic formation. And if you don't have that devotion, then it just becomes a kind of intellectual problem. How is it that Christ is present in what looks like bread and wine? When really what's at, at stake is how does Christ give himself to us in love so that we do want to bend the knee before him? Well, I think there's something to be said for teaching ourselves, you know, how to act in front of the Blessed Sacrament. If we acted like it was just simply nothing, I think that does tend to form us to think it is nothing. Whereas from the very beginning, once we encounter, even if we don't understand, we see in community and we see everyone else behaving a certain way toward the Eucharist, you know, when you're in the parish. I think it says something, even if we may not in our early stages of life even get what's going on, we know that there's something different here. and We're supposed to behave differently and behave in a way of of reverence. And I also start to think that it also is the beginning of developing a relationship with God, who we don't fully comprehend even now as I think about it. I mean, if I think about my relationship with my husband, he's a mystery. I mean, y'all men are a mystery. Let me just let me just say that. But in my relationship with him, I learn more about him and I behave a particular way with him that I think helps me to continue to love and fall in love with him. And I wonder if there's that sort of similarity in our relationship or how we orient ourselves or behave toward God and his presence. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's pretty beautifully said, especially as you think about, I think being Catholic, the great part for me is that formation starts with the body, right? It's not yeah. that the mind doesn't matter, but what we do with our bodies matter. And so for my son, if we just sort of schlepped into church, dragged <laughs> ourselves into the pew, we said like, well, mass, it's an occasional event. We kind of want to go to some of the time, but you know, we got a lot of other things. What we're communicating to him is that this doesn't matter. So it starts with our body and then it moves to our capacity to start explaining it, understanding this mystery. You know, when I first fell in love with my wife on the same note, it did start with the body. I know that sounds more salacious, actually, as, as I said <laughs> it, uh, but it did start with uh, right. certain practices, right? See, um, yeah. Being together and spending time together and certain sort of ritual courtship as I was wooing her, I suppose, uh -huh, uh -huh. back when I was still wooing. But, you know, there's something else that you say in the book and um, that made me think about when you're mentioning your courtship with your wife and that it was physical. You had to see her first to even notice. But there's something that you say later in the book about even when we don't receive Christ, just being in his presence, this sort of did you say ocular sacrament? I can't remember what it was, but the way in which you described it just, just oh, made my heart melt when I thought about the many times I've been at Mass and been able to receive or the many times I've gone to Eucharistic adoration where I'm not necessarily receiving, but I'm in His presence. I'm watching Him. I'm looking at Him. That there's still an effect upon us of being in His presence and, you know, just the our sight being able to take Him in. Could you explain a little bit more about that? One of the things, of course, the Eucharist is meant for consuming, right? Christ gives yes. his body and blood. And so we don't want to discount that. But I think one of the dimensions that the church has forgotten is that all our senses are involved in the Eucharist, right? So what was once called ocular communion was this sense in the medieval period that we would look upon the host. And in looking upon the host, this is a medieval theory of, of seeing or of optics is that our eyes almost would touch the object that we were looking at. And so there was a real intimacy in the act of seeing. So I think all our senses have to be involved in adoring the Eucharist, and that includes seeing, right? We don't see Jesus. In fact, we don't immediately see Christ. That's the whole point of the Eucharistic doctrines. Faith alone suffices. 
And yet, as we see and gaze upon the host and look upon it and look upon it in the church, I should say, surrounded by all the images of the saints and of Mary and of the whole communion of those gathered for worship, that itself is already an act of communion, right? It's already Mm -hmm. an act of communion, of intimacy. It's why, you know, we're we're talking a lot about um, spousal love, which kind of makes sense. I mean, do you always have to touch your spouse? No, right? I mean, there is this gaze and this gaze, uh, my undergrads love when I sort of speak about love is this crossing of gazes. And so in the Eucharist, there really is this kind of crossing of gazes. What looks like bread and wine is really an icon of divine love. And yet we're looking upon it. And in looking upon it, we're changed in the process. I just want to step back a second because I'm thinking about this. In the Roman rite, when I think of the Eucharist, there seems to be so much tied up with age of reason as if we have to have an ability to comprehend. And there's something that I think can set us up for a mistake there in that I think it focuses sometimes too much on our ability being what makes the sacrament real or efficacious. Can you talk about how you think that might inform a little bit of the many confusions around the Eucharist? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I've been involved for years in catechesis of young kids preparing for the sacrament. And I think the temptation in the church is to think age of reason means that you understand philosophy. Right? Yeah, right, so yeah. you're like, okay, so now you're ready to understand the difference between substance and accidents. And, you know, my eight-year-old is pretty awesome, but he does not understand substance and accidents perfectly well. Right. The only thing that the church requires is that you know that that bread is different than ordinary bread. It's not ordinary bread. That's the age of reason. And that's the age of reason alone. It's this sort of real desire. I actually see my daughter not yet awakening to the age of reason. She's Mm -hmm. four and Mm -hmm. she wants the food, but she has no sense of it being Jesus. But I watched my son as he approached the age of seven and eight, and he really awakened that this bread was not ordinary bread and that it really mattered. And so that's all the church requires. It's the reason why those with special needs in the church should receive the blessed sacrament and pastors that keep it away from them is really terrible. They have an improper sense of reason. Reason is to know that it's something different. That is it. You basically could ask a kid, like, do you know that this is not the same thing as bread? And if they right. say yes, then they're at the age of reason on this particular point. Of course, you know, that will deepen as they get older. But with my experience with children, when do we reach the age of reason? For <laughs> men, I think it's like 27 or 28. <laughs> Mm, no comment. <laughs> I used to, I used to say that the X Y and the chromosomes, the Y was like, why, Lord, did you do this? But, <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> but no, I. But you know, you said something to me. I actually didn't know. I did not know that there were some pastors out there actually withholding from children with developmental delays just because they have the developmental delay and they misunderstand what age of reason means. I had no idea of that. That's unfortunate. We definitely should do something about that. The other thing that I think comes into a lot of this discussion about the Eucharist when you talk about substance and accidents is the way in which the modern mind thinks about substance versus what is intended by that meaning. That's right. Yeah. Substance is not a thing. It's not matter. It's not stuff. Substance is philosophical term. So it's that which cannot be seen. It's something that makes a thing a thing, right? So when I think about a pony, 
for example, I have a pony in front of me. What do I see? I see, I, I actually don't know what I see with a pony. I probably shouldn't have chosen pony, but let's say I chose <laughs> my little pony, uh, which I have more familiarity with. You uh-huh. know, I see hair, I see a cutie mark, I see all sorts of things, but I don't see the whole pony at once. And that's the point is that the substance of something is what makes that thing what it is. And so in transubstantiation, it's actually a very simple doctrine. What it is, is no longer bread and wine at all, but it changes its substance, what it is, which is not visible to the eyes. And what remains through a miracle are what we call accidents or those characteristics we see, touch, taste. And so those accidents stay behind, right? Because Christ doesn't feed us with flesh and blood in a literal sense because we don't eat human flesh and human blood. What do we eat? We eat bread and wine. And so those accidents remain behind so that the Eucharist remains an image of food while all along it really is Christ's body and blood. It's the whole gift of himself. So when you say transubstantiation, you're not talking about a physical change. Not at all. And I think I've done a variety of interviews or, you know, people ask about Eucharistic miracles and they say, all right, so there's a Eucharistic miracle and I see now that the host is bleeding. Now I know actually what's happening in the Eucharist, which is also not true. Eucharistic miracles would be secondary, meant to call us to faith to the primary really miracle that's taking place, which is bread and wine becomes body and blood, which cannot be seen. And so, no, it's not a physical change. And I think that's where the Pew study makes mistakes. And that's where a lot of Catholics, who even might know the doctrine, might say something different based upon the Pew study. Now, now let me move just a little bit more because, you know, we talked about the Eucharist, what it is, transubstantiation, sort of lightly. But one of the things that we talk about in the church is being, and I think this comes up in discussions around who should receive the Eucharist, is the preparation for the Eucharist through the Sacrament of Reconciliation, and that we should not approach to receive our Lord if we are not properly situated, if we're not in a state of grace. Could you talk a little bit more about that and, and the Eucharist? Yeah, I think if we understand approaching the Blessed Sacrament and receiving confession as like a kind of regulation, we get it wrong, right? I mean, it's more of a matter of, do we have the capacity to recognize the love that is given, right? The love that is offered to me, or am I in the kind of sin that makes it impossible to recognize that love, right? And Mm -hmm. sin can do that. You know, I think about myself as a professor. My students are gifts in principle. But if you teach people, you sometimes get annoyed at them. And I actually begin to despise them and hate them. I want them to come to office hours, but I really don't want them to come to office hours because, you know, I got a life and they're annoying, right? So Mm. what would I need to be well disposed to receive them? I would need to have a perspective change to look differently upon them. And so in the sacrament of confession, we confess to God that we're not worthy to receive. It's an occasion of offering, of coming to recognize how we need to change, right? The first act of any act of confession, right, is first acknowledging that you are incomplete, that you don't get it all, that you need to change and become a different kind of person. And so we receive it and we enter that state of grace to receive the Blessed Sacrament, not just because it's a regulation or God's going to judge us and throw us into hell right away, but because if you know what's there, you want to receive it with a heart that is well disposed for love. And if you don't, it's kind of a little bit an act of irreverence. 
I was about to ask that because I was reading Archbishop Cordelione's documents that he put around on the Archdiocesan website where he quotes St. Paul. But anyway, he's talking about to eat and drink without discerning the body means not discerning the reality of the body of Christ. And one of the things that I was thinking about is how can you discern well if grave sin has occluded that ability? I mean, that's kind of one of the things I was like, can you really be present to him when you've committed grave sin, which is the opposite of using the body and the mind and all these things in a way of reverence toward the Lord? I just started thinking about what is sin itself? What is grave sin, freely chosen? What does that say about our belief in God's existence itself? And then even more specifically, then what does it say about what we really believe about his real presence in the Eucharist? Are we lying? You know, sometimes I'm like, are we lying when we go, if we're in this grave sin and we go and receive him? It seems like two acts that are not in accord with each other. Does that make sense? That's right, yeah. I mean, this has been a huge question in the church. In the medieval period, it was presumed that we were such sinners that we should never receive. And so it was irregular for people to receive. In fact, there's a council, Lateran Four, that required a yearly reception of the sacrament so that people would go to confession at least once a year. That was in 1215. But there were these sort of medieval women who wanted to receive the Blessed Sacrament more, and they were viewed rather suspiciously Mm. And yet they pushed for more frequent reception. Of course, they recognized their own sinfulness and their unworthiness of receiving. So there is a kind of danger, I think, of a kind of scrupulosity we can get into, right? Like everything Mm -hmm. I do is the worst and uh, (laughs) therefore I'm never worthy to receive. But that's the point of the mass. Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul should be healed. So Mm -hmm. that happens. But there is grave sin, right? I mean, there is grave sin, the kind in which in receiving the body and blood of Christ, you know, part of receiving the body and blood of Christ is you're saying like, this is what I become. This is what I belong to. I belong so deeply to the sacrificial love of our Lord. And if you proclaim that, but the rest of your life is a lie, then you don't receive really the body and blood of our Lord in an authentic way. And Of course, the Eucharist is a medicine of forgiveness. It forgives ordinary sins. But there are things that we can do that are rather dreadful, right? If I defraud my neighbor continually on purpose, right? Steal his money, make him suffer. Can I walk in any authenticity or any coherency to receive the Blessed Sacrament? Uh, No, I can't. I am not the body of Christ in the world. I have not become what I've received. And that's the point of confession, is to restore that communion. So, of course, then the question comes when they talk about manifest graves and like obstinate, public, contrary witness. How do we judge that? There's so many things like people say, you don't know somebody's heart or you don't know if they went to sacrament reconciliation and all of these things. And I think there's a concern of scandal when someone that's, let's say, a known adulteress or whatever, somebody that people see them going up and they're like, but aren't they living with this person? It isn't their spouse. You know what I mean? So how do we, as people not knowing somebody's interior, how do we come to be okay or not? How should we see these things? Yeah, I mean, I think scandal's a big deal. Um, part, of it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. part of it is, if you ask how Tim O'Malley deals with it, Tim O'Malley's very concerned about Tim O'Malley. My neighbor, of course, in public scandal, I'm not a pastor of a parish. I'm not a bishop. I have a certain obligation, of course, to my neighbor and even fraternal correction to my neighbor. But it's not my decision as Tim O'Malley, whether they receive or not. 
On the other hand, there is the authority of the pastor and the bishop to have conversations with those who are in scandal in some way, shape, or form. And there are certain sort of regulations for it, rules for it. The bishop is to approach the person and have a conversation with them and let them know what sort of situation they're in. Uh, This is part of the healing process to receive the sacrament right. Personally, pastorally, I don't think like the time to have this conversation is right when they're approaching the altar. (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, that's (laughs) not in the genius sort of pastoral world. That's not the right time. But to receive the Eucharist is not just a private act. It's not just a private act between me and Jesus, right? I commit myself to communion with the whole body and to a certain Eucharistic witness in the world. And I can't just say like, well, it's my private act and my heart alone knows what's happening with me and no one else can tell me anything. That's just sort of untrue, Mm -hmm. I think. And that's why there are occasions to have these conversations. Well, and for our listeners too, when we're talking about scandal, we don't mean just, oh, the gossip. No, we mean that it gives a poor witness that might lead others to follow that same behavior, to not recognize the seriousness or graveness of a particular sin and to then therefore repeat it, to model that. And that's like my very lazy explanation of scandal. I'm sure you have a much more precise one. Tim, maybe that you would want to share as our listeners are hearing us use the term scandal? I actually liked yours. <laughs> okay. I, I, think it's, I think it's not lazy in the least. I think it's the exact thing that we're talking about. It's not gossip. It's not, there's a kind of scandal of, it's not just minor little things. These are public witnesses that go contrary to the teaching of the church in such a way that's really sort of dreadful. I mean, it's the kind of, when we talk about scandal, we're talking about like someone receiving the Eucharist and then heading over and torturing their neighbor, a sort of totalitarian dictator. This happened in Latin America, right? That you had people attending mass and then going to to sort of kidnap and put their neighbors into sort of camps. Like that is scandal. We'll be back in a minute. So of course I have to ask them, what do you make of this current debate, the public discussion around President Biden receiving communion. And for those who are unaware, you know, there's been a discussion around Biden's political public support of keeping abortion legal as an issue for whether or not he should or could or should continue to present himself for communion because it creates scandal, people say. So what do you make around this current debate here around receiving communion and President Biden? Yeah, there's, I think, two things. First, the phrase that keeps getting used is something like Eucharistic coherence. Yeah. Uh, This Mm -hmm. is a phrase from Benedict XVI from a document called the Sacrament of Love that he wrote after a synod on the Eucharist. And although linked to political figures, it has to be understood that that phrase really speaks about the whole parish and every Christian's or Catholic's reception of the Eucharist as being coherent. So, you know, let's take a parish that, I don't know, in some way, shape, or form, perhaps implicitly, but perhaps even actively supports sort of racism within its walls, right? Mm -hmm. It is Eucharistically, that parish and the people in the parish are Eucharistically incoherent, right? As Benedict says elsewhere, to receive the Blessed Sacrament without engaging in concrete acts of love is to receive the sacrament in a way that makes it intrinsically fragmented. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's the first thing is like all of this discussion requires us to understand my own Eucharistic incoherence myself, right? So I acknowledge this. 
But there are moments, and I think this is true, I've heard some bishops say like, well, let's not politicize the Eucharist. And I know what they mean, but I think we also need to recognize that the Eucharist is intrinsically political because to receive it is to receive the body and blood of Christ and to pledge yourself to transforming the world in love. And it's a public act. It's not just a private act. It's not just me alone with Jesus. There's a public dimension to it. And so I am not President Biden's bishop, and I do not know the conversations that President Biden has had with Cardinal Gregory. That's not mine to know. But the idea that we would never, for example, make a decision to not give the Blessed Sacrament to a politician who supports, I don't know, abortion or racism or Mm -hmm. all sorts of things that we would find so atrocious as people, the idea that we would never do that, I think, is wrongheaded and confuses the Eucharist. It privatizes the Eucharist. So in this particular situation, who knows what the decision is made? But to me, the question is a matter of, do we actually recognize the public dimension of Eucharistic reception? One of the things that I thought about is, that is, that, like you said, it's in the bishop's purview to decide. I'm, this is I'm so glad I'm not a bishop. <laughs> I can just tell you, I'm so glad I'm not a bishop because I think about the difficulties of dealing with matters like this and how it appears to so many people, not, not just in the United States, but internationally. And, and, and what does God say and all these things? But I like how you say, you know, this is also the, the thing about Eucharistic coherence is something for all of us to consider about our own Eucharistic coherence. But still, there seems to be a discussion that's moving toward a policy of denial of some kind. My concern has been, in terms of understanding how the Catholic Church operates, every bishop decides within his own diocese. So how does this policy of denial, like some bishops are considering, impact or even understanding of the operation of, you know, within each diocese of a bishop's authority? Yeah, I mean, personally, I think a whole USCCB policy of denial just won't be possible. I think for this reason is that local bishops have authority and the USCCB doesn't have, they can release a teaching document. And perhaps that's really what's really being talked about right now. I think in some ways we get kind of addicted to the drama of the news. And I, I expect that really what's at stake at this stage is a teaching document and local bishops are going to be able to make a decision on how to go about this. I think most of what they're talking about is, well, how as a local bishop do you have this conversation with this person? And how do you move ahead? And what's the procedure you follow? Those are the kind of questions I think under consideration. But a universal policy for the whole U.S. church is, I suspect, canonically impossible simply because the local bishop has power to decide. And one of the things I thought about with someone in a position of when he was vice president even, he travels the world. So I think like in terms of the territory of a bishop, he goes outside the United States. Like I think he was in Europe recently and went to mass and probably received communion. You know what I mean? So it's like to have a public policy of denial almost seems what kind of confusion might happen if he were to go to Rome and receive from the Bishop of Rome, the Holy Father, you know, which emphasizes he is the Bishop of Rome. And so it made me think, how can I, for myself or even for others, if we're talking about Eucharistic coherence, what can I do that might be helpful in these kinds of situations? And I come back to St. Teresa of Avila with one of the things that she was telling her sister. She says, whenever you see a sister fallen into vice, you should practice the opposite virtue. 
And so I'm wondering here also how much my role, if I want to be in communion with Christ and I see a fallen brother or sister, can I practice the opposite virtue to sort of make amends in this way and to maybe in some spiritual way, try to bring about some reconciliation here? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I like that. That's, I think, in some ways what I meant by when scandal happens, what does Tim O'Malley do? Tim O'Malley has Tim O'Malley to take care of. And of course, Mm -hmm. my neighbor, my family. But that means to practice the virtues that I'm called to. I'm very aware of my own remarkable sinfulness or terribleness. I see it regularly. My spouse and my children tell me about them. (laughs) Oh, they're real good for that, aren't they? That is their vocation in life. And they have a rich, uh, they have a very rich spouse to, to exercise their vocation on, on this point. But, you know, I think to me, that's my primary concern, right? I mean, take even this situation, am I pro-life enough, right? It's an, it's an invitation for me. Am I uncomfortable to witnessing to the dignity of every life from birth to death? Do I back down, right? So these are questions I have to ask myself mm-hmm. in light of what I see as, you know, there is a Eucharistic incoherency in President Biden as a Catholic. I can see that. I think everyone can see that, or many of us can see that. But then that calls me to witness to a sort of deeper communion and a deeper witness to to the dignity of all lives. I think somehow abortion is easy for people to see and easy for people to stay just on that without recognizing that we are called to more. It's not just abortion. I mean, I'm not saying it's not important. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is the way you just mentioned it, that we need to have a complete whole entire sort of introspection of where am I incoherent with what I say I believe, how I approach the Lord and what I should be doing. And so I'm saying, given this, what advice would you give to Biden's pastor? What advice would you give to the bishop? Um, wow. So uh, <laughs> I would say, hey, good luck, first of all. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. I would say try to stay off camera. Um, <laughs> right. You know, I think it's the same advice that any pastor should have is you should know your flock and you should preach to your flock. And that includes me, right? I mean, I need to hear the good news and I need to hear the call to conversion. And we shouldn't back down from that. I like that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a medicine for the imperfect, for those who are on the way. Yeah. But if it's going to be medicine, you need to know you're sick, right? You need to know the sickness that you possess. And so I think directness to President Biden is, is not a bad thing. I mean, I think we sometimes treat the pro-life issues as a kind of plus minus game, right? So, well, like this one's pro-choice and this one's pro-life. But of course, in some ways, right, around abortion, but this one's, you know, ignores the immigrants. So that's a negative, right? We, we try to treat this spectrum as if we could give them a pro-life score. And then, it, you know, the higher the score, the better you are. Like, right. The actual witness is to be pro-life everywhere, right? right. We're called to perfection. Mm-hmm. We're not called to like halfway moments. And so I think if I was Biden's pastor, I would preach to him in the ways that it's appropriate to preach to a congregation or assembly and worship together. And I think being direct is not a terrible thing. I don't disagree. I keep thinking about the kind of sacrificial love a bishop has to demonstrate to his flock, and particularly someone like President Biden. And one of the things that I keep thinking of is the way, at least I see it being perceived, is that he's, you know, people say, cut him off, cut him off, cut him off from communion, you know? And I'm like, but do you think the pastoral care for that soul ends there? It's just not that 
cut and dry. I still see that there has to be some accompaniment. You know, it can't be just, you're cut off, bye, out of here. <laughs> you know, we want to always stay with a particular soul. And one of the things that I also was reading in your book is it's such a beautiful reminder is that receiving the Eucharist strengthens us and is something we need as we go through life. And it, they talk about how receiving the Eucharist changes the body. It gives us an immortality of the body. And ah, oh, there's something so beautiful about that when I just start to think about that and what God is doing for us and has done for us and will do for us and that generous gift of himself in the Eucharist. And that journeying is what Pope Francis, I think, has been asking his priests and bishops to do, to smell like the sheep, to be with us, to accompany much in the way that Christ does. And I think there's something deeper there for us to meditate about and understanding what that looks like. Yeah, I think you're right. I have to admit, I like pious people kind of, but I don't like to hang out with them all the time. <laughs> and I think this is anti-Eucharistic too. Like you can form this little community of the special who oh, are perfect yeah. and think themselves to have arrived and only they occupy this sort of Eucharistic vision. I much prefer to hang out with people who know that they're incomplete. And in, in that sense, I think we all are. I take that for President Biden and I take that especially for myself. Obviously, my spouse is not incomplete, but everyone else, like my children and uh, <laughs> myself, we're incomplete. We're on the way. And right. I take it quite real that that's the case. And, and that's why I hope what comes out of this dialogue is not just yet another moment to deal in a kind of like polarization in the church, right? You know, if for some reason, President Biden at some stage is asked to not receive the Blessed Sacrament somewhere, our response to this should not be like, some delight, some sick delight that at last right. he gets what he deserves, right? Yeah. That already is a sign that maybe we shouldn't be receiving the Eucharist either. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Who would want to delight in someone being unable to receive so great a gift from God, right? But it also, I still think we do need ourselves while we're so ready to make a decision about somebody else's soul that we ourselves need to be deeply introspective about our own, as we say, Eucharistic coherence and avail ourselves of the Sacrament of Reconciliation. But whatever the case, I'm just imploring the bishops to please, can y'all increase availability of sacrament other than a half hour before the vigil mass? You know, I'm just like, for whole parish. I mean, if we all start realizing, hey, I need to reconcile with the Lord before I receive him, it sure would help <laughs> if, if that reconciliation, reconciliation were more greatly available. I think that also says something about our belief in the real presence. Yeah, that's everything. Yeah, I mean, it's nothing like walking into a parish and seeing that confessions are on Saturdays from 4.45 to 4.47. Yeah, right. It sure feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? It sure feels like that. But I'm going to ask our listeners to definitely be praying for our bishops, praying for our leaders. Yeah, secular leaders, you know, our leaders out in the world, because these are difficult times, you know, and while we like to say, oh, it's easy for this person or that person, we should reflect upon why the things that we know that we do that are sinful, why we still do them when we know they're wrong. When we were so quick to talk about somebody else, we definitely need to be looking at ourselves and doing that uh, inner conversion and that repentance and reparation. So 
I just want to thank you so much for coming on the Glory Purpose podcast and talk with me about real presence. What does it mean? Why does it matter? Just a lot of things I think that were super positive in the book for us to meditate on and to think about as we are listening and watching this conversation on Eucharistic coherence. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining me. Thanks, Gloria, so much. And thanks for reading the book. If you want to catch more episodes of the Gloria Purpose podcast, be sure to subscribe to the show on your podcast app. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.